I know something about you that you don't know that I know. Maybe some of you know that I know it, but not all of you know that I know it, but I do know it. I know that you know that you will live forever. And I also know that you know that the only question is where. Even people who say that they don't believe in eternal life believe in eternal life. And I know that you know that. I know that you know that your existence is eternal. You are an immortal soul that will never die. The question is not if you'll live forever, the question is where. And the reason I know that you know that is because Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in your heart. You know it. Deep, deep down, you know that. You may try to suppress that truth. You may try to drown it out with alcohol and drugs and other kind of escapes. You may try to numb yourself into oblivion with media and entertainment. You may try to escape all day, every day, but I know that you know that you will live forever. Again, the question is where? When God put eternity in your heart, He did that because He wants you to know Him more than you want to know Him. And He's written us a book in the Bible, the whole of which is dedicated to helping you know if you have eternal life versus eternal death. The book of 1 John is dedicated to the assurance of eternal life. There's a series of tests or um, steps that you could work through under the light of the presence of God, under the truth of the Word of God, to test your soul to see if the assurance you have that you will live forever with God in His presence rather than separated from Him under His judgment If you have the assurance of eternal life, 1 John exists to help you discern if you have it according to God's standard. Now another thing that you know about yourself that I may not know is whether or not you are confident that you're a Christian. Maybe you are very, very sure of that. And others of you, you may not be so sure whether you are or whether you're not. And I also may not know that about you. But you do know this, don't you? You can be very sure and very wrong. And you can be very unsettled and very saved. Where does assurance come from? I know that I know. I nailed it down. I did my part. Is that where assurance comes from? One of the tests of the assurance of our salvation that 1 John gives, let me just take you through the book, is in chapter 1. Do you confess your sins? Or do you say that you don't have them? In chapter 2, One of the other assurances that you do have genuine salvation 
is whether or not you love the world. Are you a world lover? Do you think with fondness about what this fallen world can give you? And are you attracted to it? Preeminently. Do you love this world more than you love the maker of it? Do you love its fallenness? Its depravity? Its sin systems? Are you attracted to the things for which Jesus died? Chapter 3 gives you another test. Not only in chapter 1 do you confess your sins in the light of God's presence who sees them anyway. In chapter 2, do you love the world or do you love the maker of it? Or chapter 3, a test we're given there is whether or not the hope for eternal life is set squarely on the return of a person. Christ. Who when He comes again will make us pure as He is pure. If your hope is not now set on Him, then it will not then be set on Him. And then another test is in chapter 4. Not only do we confess our sins, do we forsake world loving, do we have a hope that's set on Christ, but chapter 4 would say, and very concretely, you cannot love Him there if you do not love them here. Do you love your fellow man? Do you love them? Especially the brethren. Do you love God's people? Do you love them? Self-sacrificially, do you love them? These are some tests for the assurance of eternal life that 1 John gives us. But beloved, the most clear test, I think a more accurate way to say it, all those are very clear. But the most comprehensive the most far-reaching, the most leave-nothing-out test for the assurance of eternal life comes in chapter 5. We can say that this proof, this surety, is so comprehensive that it includes all the others. If you will, it is the test of all tests about whether or not you belong to God and where you will spend eternity. Now, we've made it to our 62nd sermon in our Here is Love series, going through the 66 books of the Bible, and I can think of no more explicit expression of that sermon series title, Here is Love, in all the Bible than the book that we'll consider today. Indeed, today's subject focuses on the one whose name is love, and his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. So I encourage you for the next few moments, to listen prayerfully. We pray a lot in our services, I guess, proportionately. And we pray so much that sometimes lost people are bored, which is a good thing. We want to talk to God so much that people who don't like talking to God get bored at church. And though many of us have prayed, and we've offered lots of prayers, even in this little service we have, some of us have prayerlessly prayed. Haven't really had a genuine conversation with God since you entered the room. I want to ask you for the next few minutes not to listen to this sermon mindlessly, but to engage. To take the next few moments to consider things that matter for eternity. I invite you to 1 John chapter 5. Beneath the light of God's Word, and before we read the text, I must remind you that the verse and the chapter divisions are not inspired. 
They didn't have numbers and paragraph breaks in the original. And in my translation, there's a break between verses 12 and 13 of 1 John chapter 5, but I believe that they fit together as a unit. And we're going to read verses 11, 12, and 13 of 1 John chapter 5. New American Standard Translation, hear the word of the living God. Verse 11. And the testimony is this. That, pardon me, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's blessing once again. Father, for the few moments that we'll consider this, this bottomless well of truth in these three verses, would you show your mighty gracious, merciful, redeeming, saving, all-loving, infinite, eternal self to us. Show us Yourself, Lord. The real God, not the God of our imagination. Real salvation, not the thing that we talk about so often, but who You are and what You've done. God, come and help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The point of this passage is the first point of this sermon. And then the details of these verses are the next two points. The point of the passage is faith. Faith in Jesus. The first four chapters of 1 John focus on love and obedience. Chapter 5 focuses on faith. And I say that to you because the fifth and final chapter speaks of faith more than all the other chapters combined. Ten times 1 John mentions faith. Seven of those are in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes, there it is, that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 5. Whoever, uh, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 10, three times. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself, the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And we already read verse 13, which is the next example. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the brass tacks of the Bible. Big book. God's main message to you in this big book. The assurance of salvation is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's clearly what verse 12 is talking about. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. We'll go back there in just a moment. But the assurance of salvation. If you want to know if you know God, you have to answer this question. Do you know Him in His Son? The assurance of the salvation God provides, He gives to us in the only place salvation is provided, and that is a who? Jesus. The assurance of salvation is a person, but the access, the place you find it, the, the geographic point, if you will, that you must travel to to get it, the place 
is a cross and an empty tomb. Where Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth to pay the ransom that you owed to God for your crimes against Him, Christ paid that penalty at Calvary. And His empty tomb, which is just a few hundred yards away from that place geographically, is another place that you must go to appropriate, to receive, to accept the salvation God offers because it's only in the risen Redeemer, Romans chapter 4, that we can be justified before God, made right in His sight. So assurance is a person, the access is a place, and the assurer, the one who lets you know that you have it, is also a person. Now I'm a pastor, and therefore, for good reason, and I don't discourage this. People ask me all the time about their spiritual condition. I literally spend my life trying to point people to the beauty of Christ through His Word. What a calling! And many times, and I don't discourage it, I encourage it, many times people will ask me questions about their own quandaries concerning their assurance or lack thereof. But as I've said in those contexts, and I've said in this context many times, and I don't tire of saying again, I can't give you assurance. That's not my job. I don't pat people on the back and say, welcome to the kingdom, brother, if they pray a prayer in my presence. There is someone who gives assurance, and His name is the Holy Spirit. Everything that we're built on here at Grace Church is this truth. Salvation is not a what, it's a whom. Salvation is not something that God gives you, it's someone to whom God gives you. If you don't want Christ, then you don't want the Christianity that Christ offers. Because the Jesus of the Bible, we say a lot around here, saves all by Himself. You didn't help Him do it. But He also saves all for Himself. That's the best news of the Gospel. Since this passage has so much to say about faith, I've mentioned to you the examples. What is faith? What is belief? There is a kind of faith that doesn't please God. It's an empty faith. Or it's a big faith, maybe, in the wrong object. A lot of confidence in the wrong thing will end you in the same place as no confidence in the right thing. Verse 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe. Now where's the focus? The locus of faith. In the name of the Son of God. There it is. The faith that pleases God is this. The faith that rests every ounce of itself on another. Theologians call this an alien righteousness. We're not talking about planets and spaceships. We're talking about something outside of you. It is a thrusting of the soul upon another for all that God requires for you to be made acceptable to Him. Now, I'm not opposed to some of the questions we ask, but they can be confusing, and worse than that, they can be damnably detrimental. Would you like to accept Christ? That's the wrong question. The question has never been, is Christ acceptable to you? The question is, are you acceptable to Him? It's not when did you accept Him, it's when did He accept you? 
And the answer is, when His lacerated body poured blood out and put it on the mercy seat of heaven so that you could be made right with God at such a cost. Faith doesn't save anybody. I believe. You can't tell me I don't believe. I agree with you that you believe. The question is, who do you believe? Faith is the instrument through which God brings salvation. The saxophone doesn't play itself. It's the object of our faith that saves. The name of the Son of God. If you believe very strongly in the wrong object, you will perish in your sins. Christ alone is a suitable Savior for sinners as guilty as we. The salvation that we must have is a salvation that only Christ Jesus can provide. You must not only be saved from your vices, all the bad you've done. You also have to be saved from your virtues, all the good you've done. You have to repent of your best deeds. You have to repent of all your prayerless prayers, of all your self-righteous Bible reading, of all your spiritual words, and taking the name of the Lord God in vain by calling yourself something that He wouldn't. You can't fit through the narrow door of heaven holding all your good works. If you're trying to commend yourself to God by your religious behavior, then you're stacking up reasons that God should condemn you. If there is a righteousness to be had outside of Christ, then God is the cosmic fool. Why would God put His own Son forward as a propitiation in His blood, Romans chapter 3, as an atoning sacrifice, 1 John chapter 2, as the high priest who gave not a sacrifice of a lamb or goats or bulls or any other kind of blood, but His own blood, why would God have done that? If there was any other way for you to be made right with Him, He's the fool of all fools if your goodness gets His gladness. Faith doesn't give God anything. What is faith? The simplest way to say what faith is, according to Scripture, is to say it something like this. Faith that pleases God is the empty-handed reception of all that God is for us in Christ. You don't give God anything with faith. You receive through faith all that God is for you in His Son. The empty-handed reception of all that God is for us in Christ. That's the faith that pleases God. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Faith doesn't give God anything. Faith accepts, embraces in all of His glorious fullness. As the only hope of our acquittal before the God we've offended, Jesus. Faith entrusts oneself. Not only accepts, receives, but faith gives, yields, surrenders. Faith entrusts oneself. I give myself away to an almighty Savior who's adequate enough, as impossible as it may seem, to rescue a rebel as hell-deserving as me, when Jesus' best friends heard Jesus teach about salvation, their response to Jesus was, well then, who can be saved? To which He said, I've got worse news. With man, it is impossible. 
but not with God. For all things are possible with God. In context, that doesn't mean giving you a new car. Or an easier life. Or more money in your bank account. All things are possible with God. You rip that verse out of context and you apply it to superficial things, what pagan wouldn't want to use that to as a little magic trick to, lo- to rub the genie bottle in heaven to give you something that any other lost person would want? The question about Christianity is something like this. Do you love what you would not have loved unless you had seen the beauty of a God-centered God? Have you been awakened to love things that lost people can't love? Faith thrusts itself, biblical faith, thrusts itself. I use that word on purpose. It's not hesitant. It doesn't stutter. It doesn't sputter. The transmission is not broken in real faith. It moves forward 0-60 to in a nanosecond. It's the thrust of a helpless soul into the arms of an everlasting Lamb who was once slain for you. That's faith. And if nobody else puts their faith in Him, come hell or high water, you can't not believe. That's biblical faith. That's the context of the passage. With that in mind, I invite you to the details of these two verses that I especially want to zero in on. Belief came from 13. Let's look at 11 then 12. Verse 11. Eternal life is located somewhere. Do you want the assurance of salvation? The verse says it, black ink, white paper, no special powers of interpretation to figure this out. God said, in no uncertain terms, eternal life is in the Son of God. Do you want the assurance of eternal life? Then go where it's found. As we look to Scripture to wrestle with the question of, Pastor, how can I be sure? How can I have the assurance of eternal life? Little parentheses, not in the notes. Typically, lost people don't ask that question. If you battle with that question, there's a high likelihood, and I know you don't want to play Russian roulette with your eternal life, but there's a high likelihood that the Spirit dwells in you. Because lost people simply don't care. If you wrestle with the question, Pastor, how can I have eternal life? What you'll find if you'll lick your finger and turn the pages of the Bible and let your eyes fall on the words that are contained therein, you will find one main answer on repeat. God doesn't want you to miss it. You could say it negatively and you could say it positively, but the Bible will put it like this in a thousand different passages. Negatively, the Bible's answer is this. If you seek assurance for your salvation, God will never give it to you. Now, doesn't that sound like a strange thing to say in a sermon about assurance of salvation? But it's everywhere in the Bible. If you seek the assurance of your salvation, you cannot have it. The same thing would be true if you insert any other wonderful virtue. Peace, joy, satisfaction, love, etc. We're told in Hebrews 12 that Esau sought for repentance with tears and was not able to find it. Why? Because God has never told us anywhere to seek repentance. Or to seek assurance. Or peace. Or joy. Or love. But over and over and over again, we get, seek God. So negatively, if you seek assurance, you can't find it. 
Because inevitably it becomes a warped lens. Instead of convex to show the beauty of Christ, it's concave and you start looking inward. And there's no hope in here. Positively, the Bible would put it like this. Do you want assurance? Good. That means the Holy Spirit, the One who is weaving you together physically in your mother's womb and gave to you an immortal soul that will never die, is now wooing you to Christ. Do you want assurance? Good. Good. You're being provoked. You're being pricked. God is messing with you. But He's not playing games with you. He wants you to find Him more than you could ever want to find Him. So, if you're provoked to the question, how can I be sure that I'm saved? The Bible's answer would be positively, rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. Rest. Lay down in the green pasture of the enoughness of Christ. Stop working Exodus 14, Israel, beside the bank of the Red Sea, Egypt's army barreling down on top of you with all their military might, an ocean in front of you that you can't cross, you're done. And what does God say in that moment? You be quiet, I'll fight for you. Psalm 35 has this picture of a mighty warrior. You've seen these gladiatorial battles from history or in some kind of uh, film or, or movie or show, you've seen these gladiatorial warriors and Psalm 35 has the greatest gladiator of all. It says, draw the spear and the battle axe. Can you picture that? This is this big rod with the ball on top of it that has the spikes coming out in every direction. And the psalmist said, oh God, would you draw out your spear? Would you pull out your battle axe? And instead of looking at my enemy, would you turn around and look at me for just a minute and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Can you imagine the omnipotent God of the universe before whom all the military might of the world is like a grasshopper turning around and saying to your little trembling soul, I'm your salvation. The answer to assurance of Scripture over and over and over and over again is what verse 11 is talking about. It's in the Son of God. Rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. Seek God. If you have Jesus, then you have all the blessings that come with Him. Including assurance, peace, joy, deep satisfaction of soul, and on and on we could go. If you seek those things, you can't have them. But if you seek Him, you get them and infinitely more. The testimony is this, verse 11, that God has given us, past tense, has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Have you ever meditated on verses that you know so well? Until your heart burns within you with rapturous, joy-filled worship of the God who saved you. Verses like John 3.16. And if you thought about, as you've meditated on that passage, not just thought, but prayerfully mused in the presence of God over the phrases that the Holy Spirit gave you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's not how much, that's in what way. God so loved the world. How do we know? He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever 
Here it is again. Believes in Him will not perish. Now we get the same word, but have eternal life. Have eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but have eternal life. Like verse 11, God has given us eternal life. When did that begin? Yesterday. We're already on the train. It's not stopping. If we have Jesus and this life, verse 11, is in His Son. Now in John's day, big word for the day, there were proto-gnostics. Pre-Gnosticism. It was a heresy that emerged in the first century. It became more and more mature and full-blown in the second, third, and fourth centuries. And it was basically people reading the Bible saying things like this. Flesh is bad. Spirit is good. Now, every heresy begins with what looks like a little error. There are ways in which we could agree that the Bible teaches flesh is bad, spirit is good. But if you take it to its logical end, not theological end, if you start working out God's problems so you think with your own mind, you're always going to end in a bad place. And pre-Gnosticism, flesh is bad, spirit is good, ended here. And it's the only logical way to go. Jesus must not have had a real body. Because if flesh is bad, He can't be real flesh. He must have just appeared Gnostic. Secret knowledge. He was a kind of a mirage. Much of 1 John is actually dedicated to refuting the beginnings of that heresy. And if you read it in that light, you'll see that John grabs you by your collar, pulls you close to the face of God Almighty, and will not let you go over and over saying to you in a bunch of different ways, He really came as a man. Verse 2 of chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John 4, verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Same truth as in chapter 4, verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Again, a focus on the actual incarnation of Christ. The real humanity, truly man, truly God. So chapter 5, verse 11, did you notice the opening phrase? Testimony. The testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. The word testimony harkens back to verses 7-11. through 11. The word testify or testimony nine times in those five verses. Now we know what kind of testimony we're talking about. Not your testimony. Not my testimony. That's why we talk. Can you share your testimony with me? That's a fine way to talk. That's just not what this passage is talking about. The testimony in verses 7-11, through 11, which appears, as I said, nine times in those five verses, is God's testimony concerning Jesus. And there are phrases in it about water and spirit and blood. What is that? Many, many conclude, and I agree, 
that it's a reference to the stages of the incarnation of Christ's earthly life. Either born of water, woman, or at water baptism, either way, the testimony of water. True humanity, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the next phrase, anointed by the Spirit, and shedding His blood for our sins. God gave a testimony. A real man came who's truly God. And John caps off that section with his conclusion in the verse we looked at in verse 11, and the exclamation mark is what we're going to look at next, verse 12, verse 11. The testimony is this. God's testimony. That God has given us eternal life. Where has He located it? In His Son. Now set your mind on that location before we turn our attention to verse 12 in conclusion. Set your mind's attention on the location of eternal life. I'm going to go all the way back to where I began when I first stepped up here. I know that you know that you're going to live forever. You know that. Again, you may suppress that. You may try not to think about it. But not thinking about hell is not going to make hell go away. So set your mind's attention for just a moment, will you? On the location of eternal life. Where is it? The eternal life that God gives is only to be found in one package. It's wrapped. The package has a name. His Son. This life. God has given us eternal life. Aren't you glad there's not a period but a comma? God has given us eternal life. That's the testimony. Praise God. Thank you for not putting a period there, Holy Spirit. Where can I find it? Comma. This life is in His Son. The same conclusion that's found in the great eight. Romans chapter 8. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. A lot of people believe that. They just don't go to the place where they can find it. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you want God's love? Go get it. (laughs) It's available to you in Christ, as is eternal life. If you ever wonder if God loves you, the Bible would answer that question this way. Go hide in Jesus and then tell me. Because we can be sure and we are sure that God does love Him. He is His beloved Son. His only begotten Son. He loves Him with a special love. This is the Son of my love. We are in the kingdom of the Son of His love. His beloved Son, Colossians 1. On and on. We are sure that God loves Jesus. With a special love, and all who are in Him, according to verse 11, have eternal life. So verse 11 is about Christ having you. You being in Him. And verse 12 is about you having Him. He has you in verse 11. You have Him in verse 12. This is the assurance of eternal life. So let's conclude there. Verse 12. Jesus is our assurance. It sounds so simple to say, doesn't it? You can even hear it and... Kind of internally nod. Yeah, 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 preacher. Tell me something new. Jesus is our assurance. Now, it's so simple to say, and we live in such a religiously inoculated culture. People hear phrases like that all the time and nod at them. Yep, that's right. Jesus is our assurance. What we're saying is, nothing and no one else can be. Verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God 
does not have the life. Do you want eternal life? I know that you do. Well, that may be the wrong question to ask. Because anybody who's in their right mind would not want the opposite. You don't want eternal death. I know that you don't want that. Everyone in their right mind would want eternal life. Who wouldn't? It's why we've got to stop carelessly pushing people through cattle trough kind of systems and assuring them that they're now Christians when they don't go on to live a day in their life for Christ. Anybody in their right mind wouldn't want to go to hell. And let me just be kind of open and honest with you. If you can't get a young child to pray a prayer after you, you probably don't have a pulse. If you don't have enough charisma to get them to say yes to something that you know that they know that they want to honor you, so they're going to say pretty much yes to anything you ever ask them, you've got to be a little more discerning than that. These are matters of eternal consequence. Do you want eternal life? Yes. The Bible gives us a precision, laser-focused answer. It really rewords the question. God doesn't say to you, do you want to go to heaven when you die? If you can find the verse, please come show it to me. Do you know what God's question is? Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Jesus is our assurance. Yes, that's right, preacher. Then flip it around. Do you want Him? I'm asking you with a broken heart in love. You already know the answer to this question. It's not complex. Do you want Jesus? Do you desire Him? Or as A.W. Tozer prayed, Lord, would You by Your Spirit call me out of this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long, I'm quoting Tozer verbatim, and would You make me want to want You? Do you want Jesus? Or at least do you want to want Jesus? Because if you have the Son, you have the life. And if you don't have the Son, verse 12, you don't have the life. Jesus is our assurance. Dear saints, this is the Christian life. And sometimes we don't even break down the words that we say. We're the idle babblers in the Areopagus at Mars Hill that Paul was preaching to with all of our religious words and religious symbols and all of our stuff decorating our temples. We got religion down really good. We can go through the motions easily. We can read our Bible, pray our prayers, go to church, pay our tithe, be nice, not hurt people, and life is good. But we don't even break down the words we say, do we? The Christian life, what is that? The Christ life. This is life. J-E-S-U-S. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Do we find this testimony anywhere else in the Bible? Try Galatians 2.20 on Versailles. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's basic Christianity. There aren't two or three kinds of salvation. 
Because there are not two or three saviors. Do we find this testimony anywhere else in the Bible? How about putting on Philippians chapter 3 and seeing if it fits? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, not that I've already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. And oh, I'd love to preach a sermon on that passage right now, but I'm not going to. But the most important word is four letters, T H. A-T, in that whole passage, that. Paul says, Here, here, here's, here's my Jesus. I want to press on to know Him and lay hold of that for which He laid hold of me. Why would He come after me? Why would He love me? Well, that's how I want to love Him. As much as He loves me, I want to love Him that way. Does that fit on top of you? Well, put this one on and just see if it fits. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Is this super spiritual? Second tier, Navy SEAL, elite warrior Christianity? Or is this Christianity? If you have the Son... Sleep well tonight, beloved. If you have church and baptism and Bible reading and good behavior and religious reform and moral revolutions and a lot of promises that you made to God and prayers you prayed when you were 12 and 25 and 48 and 64, if you've been baptized five times, if you read your Bible every day, if you go to church every Sunday, if you don't hurt people, if you're a good person, if you say your prayers at night before you go to bed, if you try to do nice things for other people, if you evangelize, if you perform miracles in His name, if you cast out demons in His name, if you do all kind of good stuff in His name, I pray that you will not be able to go to sleep tonight. If you don't have Jesus. Jesus be Jesus in me, Eddie Carswell. No longer me, but Thee. Resurrection power, fill me this hour. Jesus be Jesus In me. Fill me. I don't know why you would want me, but you can have me. And I know you want me because you paid an infinite cost to rescue a rebel like this to show that you must be some kind of wonderful God who would have been just and received glory in my condemnation if I went to the lowest corner of the devil's hell for a trillion eternities, God would get glory from that because it's fair. But that 
He would put His own Son forward as a propitiation to save my wretched soul. He must really want some kind of special glory in redeeming rebels like us. It must make Christ shine more beautifully than our condemnation to become our Redeemer. Or as Timothy says, the only mediator between God and men is a man, Christ Jesus. It must do something wonderful in the heart of Almighty God. It must rouse Him to pleasures that we can't even imagine. It must cause Him to be thrilled with a delight that we can't even begin to contemplate, let alone articulate that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love for us. How did He do it? Christ died for us. And if you don't want Jesus, you don't want Christianity. The last thing you would want is Christianity. Because the whole thing, the sum total, the salary package, David Dixon, a commentator that was Spurgeon's favorite, preached a sermon that's lit my heart on fire and many others. The sum of all saving knowledge. J-E-S-U-S. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Would you join me at the throne of grace again? as we ask for God's blessing on this Word. I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know what God's doing in your heart for the last months and weeks, or maybe just the last few minutes. But if you've never, as I was describing earlier, thrust your helpless soul upon the arms of the Almighty Redeemer, now would be a great time. Would you cry out in the depth of your heart where God sees? Cry out to Jesus. Throw yourself on the arms of Jesus. Look at the cross of Jesus. Look at the empty tomb of Jesus. Look at the seated King of the universe in heaven, Jesus. Look at the returning Jesus. Look at the age to come where Jesus shines in all His glory with all His people in perfect purity in a paradise where there's no sin. Just look at Him. And then tell Him more than you want your next breath. You want Him. Father, we ask that You would be glorified. I ask that You would cause people to forget anything I said that was wrong. And anything I said that was right, I ask that You would cause it to fester and grow and bother those who don't have Jesus until they close with Christ, until they truly have Jesus. Christ in You is the hope of glory. 
Give Jesus to these precious ones, I pray, in his name.